Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Heaven, Our Enduring Fascination. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November 14, 2010. In her new book, Heaven, Our Enduring Fascination with the Afterlife, Lisa Miller, the religion editor for Newsweek magazine, explores humanity's universal longing for life after death. Not every religion describes heaven in the same way, of course. And as Miller shows, belief in the afterlife has led to remarkably selfless service as well as to ruthless mass murder. The end of human history in the entire cosmos is a scientific certitude. It's also central to almost every Christian confession. Every week in my church, for example, the priest invites our congregation to proclaim the mystery of faith, to which we as congregants respond, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Not just wingnut fanatics, but most thoughtful people thus wonder, what happens at the end of history? I've come to think about this question in four broad ways. Personal, civilizational, global, and cosmic. If you're a male in Liberia today, your life expectancy at birth is 39 years. If you're lucky enough to be born a woman in Japan, demographers estimate that you'll live more than twice that long, almost 84.7 years. But no matter who you are and where you're born, mortality rates are 100%. Then comes your personal end. Either personal annihilation and absolute nothingness, or magic power of some sort. People like to quote the famous atheist Bertrand Russell, who once said, I believe that when I die, I will rot. But as Miller shows in her book, almost every people and culture of every time and place has believed some version of an afterlife. Archaeological ruins like the huge and haunting Moe statues on Easter Island in the South Pacific, or the Incan architecture of the lost city of Machu Picchu, remind us that entire cultures have collapsed. Environmental experts like Jared Diamond in his book called Collapse speak of civilizational or cultural death. His 20 case studies show how some of history's most advanced civilizations have vanished. Without major course corrections, many social scientific studies predict apocalyptic scenarios due to nuclear weapons, global warming, population growth in the places that can least sustain it, overconsumption of limited fossil fuels, massive economic inequalities, large-scale displacements of populations, famines, and wars. Civilizational end has numerous precedents. The end of the earth is a done deal. It will just take a while. My friend and solar physicist Charles says that in about five billion years, the sun will expand into a red giant 10 million times its present volume, 
at which time it will incinerate and eventually swallow the Earth. If the Sun is about 4.6 billion years old, as many scientists estimates, we're already about halfway to the end of the Earth. As hard as it is to fathom the Milky Way with no planet Earth, that's nothing, astronomically speaking, compared to the cosmic end of the universe as we know it. Physicists are divided about the future of the entire cosmos, but equally bleak. If the expansion of the Big Bang continues to propel everything outward, our galaxies will fly apart forever, although individual galaxies will collapse into black holes. But if the forces of gravity prevail, the expanding universe will eventually reverse its expansion and can collapse into a so-called big crunch. It is as sure as can be, writes the particle physicist and Anglican priest John Polkinghorne, that humanity and all forms of carbon-based life will prove a transient episode in the history of the cosmos. So we face these inevitable ends, personal, civilizational, global, and cosmic. But then what? What comes after the end? No one knows or even can know. If we accept the testimonials of people who experience death in the afterlife only to return to earthly life, any position you take constitutes an act of faith. In his review of The God Delusion by the Oxford atheist Jim Dawkins, Jim Holt thus observes that short of a miraculous occurrence, the only thing that might resolve the matter is an experience beyond the grave, what theologians have called eschatological verification. If the after-death options are either a beatific vision of God or oblivion with no God, then it's poignant to think that believers will never discover that they are wrong, whereas Dawkins and his fellow atheists will never discover that they are right. Christians propose a fifth alternative. Christian eschatology, from the Greek eschaton, meaning last things, believes that humanity's earthly end is not the ultimate end. The God who created the world will consummate its redemption. What began in the Garden of Eden will end in the city of Jerusalem. This hope is broadly and deeply embedded in the Hebrew prophets. Isaiah's poetry imagines that God will create new heavens and a new earth, Isaiah 65. As one might expect from a prophet of his time and place, Isaiah pictures this as an urban renewal of Jerusalem. Many centuries later, the first Christians, all Jewish, also pictured the new heaven and earth as a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, Revelation 21, 1-4. Isaiah also envisions universal environmental wholeness, the wolf and the lamb feeding together, with the explicit literary similarity to Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth, Isaiah 65 verse 17 bookends human history. What started in an idyllic garden culminates in an urban renewal.
In the Gospel for this week, Jesus also speaks of the Christian hope of cosmic renewal. He describes redemption drawing near for the whole earth, Luke 21, 28, and 35. So too the Apostle Paul in the epistle. In light of the future cosmic redemption, says Paul, we should engage the world rather than idle away the days and withdraw from it. Apparently, some Thessalonians had quit their jobs and stopped working because of their erroneous belief that the return of Jesus was imminent. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And so following the Hebrew prophets, Jesus and Paul, Christians have confessed the so-called blessed hope, Titus 2.13, down through the centuries. In the small Presbyterian church where I grew up, Every Sunday we confess the Apostles' Creed, one line of which reads, From whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Every once in a while we would also confess the Nicene Creed, that Jesus shall, quote, come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. This hope for an ultimate cosmic correction is not only a Christian hope, I think it's an innately human hope rooted in our sense of and longing for a future final justice. Justice for every Kurd gassed by Saddam Hussein, for every girl in Darfur gang raped by John Jaweed militia, and for every homeless person who wanders America's streets. Maybe this is why Psalm 98 for this week summons not only all the earth, but all of creation to celebrate the expectation of divine judgment. Many people think of divine judgment in negative terms. The psalmist rejoices in it. For at long last, he says in Psalm 98, verse 9, God will judge the world in righteousness and the people's inequity. That will be a good day, not a bad day. How will all this happen? I have no idea. We needn't know the details of the last days described by Isaiah, Jesus, or Paul. I like the analogy by C.S. Lewis of actors in a real-life drama. We don't know everything about the play, whether we're in the first or the last act, or even which characters play the minor and major roles. In our ignorance, we have no idea when the end of the play ought to come. But the plot will reach its fulfillment even if our limited understanding right now obscures it. Perhaps the author will fill us in after it's over, but for now, says Lewis, playing it well is what matters infinitely. And now for further reflection. The Left Behind books, with sales of over 65 million copies, are not good theology or good literature and they're full of what one critic has called voyeuristic violence. But what might they tell us about the deepest longings of ordinary people? Further, watch the film The Road, or the book by the same title by Cormac McCarthy, both of which paint an end-time scenario. And for further reading, see Alistair McGrath, A Brief History of Heaven, 2003, and the small book by C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce.
For book this week, I review Gary Wills' Bomb Power, The Modern Presidency in the National Security State, New York, The Penguin Press, 2010, 278 pages. When the United States exploded the bomb in the Nevada desert on July 16, 1945, two months after Germany had surrendered, the atomic test not only proved a terrifying weapon of science, it culminated three years of a comprehensive secret process. According to Gary Wells, it was the secret process more than the scientific product that was more fateful The drive for atomic supremacy and stockpiling was on, and by 1955, just 10 years later, the United States had amassed 1,756 bombs with a total yield of 2,880 megatons, equal to 192,000 Hiroshima's. And one person alone exercised sole authority over these bombs free from any legislative constraints, the President of the United States. Bomb power progressively evolved into a national security state of permanent war in a time of peace. This national security state, says Wills, was riddled with illegalities from the start, unaccountable to Congress, secretly funded, and resorted to any and all means to accomplish its ends. Wills writes, It may be said, it has been said, that all governments do these things. But the United States had not done so in any systematic way before the period after World War II. And other countries do not have the United States Constitution. This demise of presidential accountability destroys the very essence of democracy. The power of secrecy that enveloped the bomb became a model for the planning or execution of what Wills calls anything important, as guarded by important people. If something is not secret, then it is dismissed as unimportant. Those inside the loop disregard critics as uninformed or even unpatriotic. Executive orders undermine legislation. Secrecy covers up bungled missions, deceives Congress and the citizenry, disables disagreeable policy, and even conceals crimes. The misdeeds of secrecy are rarely punished, or punished only lightly. And so, writes Wills, the bomb altered our subsequent history down to its deepest constitutional roots, redefined the president as a lone eminence above constitutional scrutiny, militarized our entire society and economy, marginalized Congress, and even redefined the Supreme Court as a follower of the follower of the executive. The bomb was bad enough the secrecy of its political process that we've inherited did far worse. The title of the book, Bomb Power, the author is Gary Wills. For film this week, I review Countdown to Zero from the year 2010. The good news is that after the Cold War 
we reduced nuclear weapons from about 60,000 to 23,000, 96% of which are controlled by the United States and Russia. But the bad news of this documentary by the History Channel is that those bombs which remain still pose a horrible risk to humanity. Producer Lawrence Bender, who did An Inconvenient Truth, and writer-director Lucy Walker use a famous speech by President Kennedy in 1961 to the United Nations to drive their narrative. Kennedy said, Every man, woman, and child lives under a nuclear sword of Damocles, hanging by the slenderest of threads, capable of being cut at any moment by accident, miscalculation, or madness. The weapons of war must be abolished before they abolish us. To this speech by Kennedy, they add commentary by past presidents, Carter, Gorbachev, Blair, de Klerk, and Musharraf, by physicists, security experts from Harvard and Stanford, and government agents like Valerie Plain, all of whom explain how and why nuclear weapons remain such a threat. We learn how nuclear bombs can fairly easily be bought, stolen, or even made from scratch. We watch with unnerving archival footage of nuclear near misses. The end of the film argues for a world of zero nuclear weapons, and thus the title, Countdown to Zero. For another plea to disarm, see the similar documentary by former Secretaries of State Henry Kissinger and George Shultz, former Secretary of Defense William J. Perry, and former Senator Sam Nunn. The name of that film is called Nuclear Tipping Point. But for film this week, Countdown to Zero. For poetry this week, we turn to J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien lived from 1892 to 1973. The title of the poem, All Ye Joyful. Sing all ye joyful, now sing all together. The winds in the treetop, the winds in the heather. The stars are in blossom, the moon is in flower and bright are the windows of night in her tower. Dance all ye joyful, now dance all together. Soft is the grass, and let foot be like feather. The river is silver, the shadows are fleeting. Merry is Maytime, and merry are meeting. Sigh no more pine till the wind of the morn. Fall moon, dark be the land. Hush, hush, oak, ash, and thorn, hushed by all water till dawn is at hand. J.R.R. Tolkien, the title of the poem, All Ye Joyful. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November 14th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.